Today's message is titled, When You've Been Wronged. When You've Been Wronged. There's a situation that's described here at the top of Psalm 7. I'll remind you that these um, labels, not, not the one that's in italics in my Bible, but underneath the one in italics, it says, A meditation of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. That, that label, that those words uh, have been historically regarded as part of the biblical text and so are regarded as true and part of the Word of God. And so then that label, we read it as part of the Scripture reading. I'm not reading the words prayer and praise for deliverance from enemies. I mean, I just did, but I didn't do that as part of the Scripture reading because uh, the New King James editors inserted that as a description of Psalm 7, but the biblical writers wrote, a meditation of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush of Benjaminite. So that gives us our context. That gives us our situation. But that's about it. We don't really know what the situation was. We know there was a conflict between David and this fellow named Cush, who is from the tribe of Benjamin. But besides that, we don't know details. We don't know specifics of who this guy was precisely or what exactly happened. But we do know from Psalm 7 that there's conflict, and that conflict involves some false accusations. Now, I don't know about you, but I have been at times accused falsely or unjustly. I think that it is a very common human experience. Most of you have experienced that. And if you haven't, just wait. Get out a little bit more. It'll happen eventually. Even for those of you who don't get out much, you still might find yourself being falsely accused. We one time, uh, I paid the rent, and the landlord said I didn't pay the rent. And um, the next month, wanted to charge us for two months' rent. And um, that could have been during the middle of lockdown, and it could have still happened without going out to encounter or to meet people. Now, thankfully, I had receipts and the deposit notification from the bank, so we're able to get it all straightened out. Nevertheless, today's message revolves around a false accusation. It revolves around this man named Cush accusing David of something that he didn't do. So keep that in mind as we evaluate and are evaluated by today's text. Uh, we do not have slides for today's text out of uh, deference to the two people who last week said they don't like slides on the points. Um, no, it's not really because of that. It's just um, my points are a little long. They're kind of wordy. And um, this chapter is also longer, so I didn't want to have multiple slides for each main point. So we're just kind of not freestyling it because I have six pages of notes in front of me, but nevertheless, point one. Point one, David's opening cry and statement of trust in God while Satan prowls around for him. Point one, verses one and two, David's opening cry and statement of trust Trust in God, while Satan prowls around for him. Verses 1 and 2 say this, O Lord my God, in you I put my trust. Save me from all those who persecute me and deliver me, lest they tear me like a lion, rending me in pieces while there is none to deliver. So our first, I'll reread that. Uh, David's opening cry and statement of trust in God while Satan prowls around him. So the first thing we see is this pronouncement of trust in God. 
a pronouncement of trust in God. When you find yourself falsely accused, the most important thing, the step one is trust in God. But don't just keep that to yourself. Tell God, God, I trust in you. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Oh, Lord, my God, in you I put my trust. The spiritual sense of salvation belongs to the Lord, putting your trust in the Lord. That is absolutely 100% true. But that's not the main thing he's referring to right now. He's talking, to, he's talking about rescue from the situation. Now, by implication, going from lesser to the greater, yes, salvation belongs to the Lord as well in terms of being saved from your sin and saved from hell. But this rescue, this deliverance, this crying out to God, save me, is referring in this situation to those who persecute him. This guy, Cush, the Benjaminite. He says, rescue me from those who persecute him. Rescue those who persecute the innocent. Deliver me. He is asking God to actually rescue him from the situation. I know that in reform circles, we emphasize a lot about trusting in God and being um, very dependent and trusting in God and not actually wanting God to really change the situation too much. But what we see in scripture is in the Psalms here, it's not just learning to deal with a bad situation, but it's actually asking God to pull you out of it. To bring deliverance, to bring rescue, to bring safety and not to just have a calm heart while you continue to be assaulted or attacked or beaten by this Cush fellow. He's actually trusting in God to bring him out of that situation. So he starts with pronouncement of trust in God. Secondly, there are severe consequences if God does not come through for him. So this is a very severe situation. He uses the metaphor of this lion to describe it. I don't know if you've watched a lot of lion videos on YouTube recently, but I've watched a few lion videos on YouTube recently, um, particularly hunting videos. But um, did you know that you can get like an African safari? You pay some money and they'll take you and you just like go kill a random animal. And I'm all for hunting, but this seems a bit pointless to me because what are they going to do? Take the elephant back with them? No. So what are they doing? Well, they're killing it. Okay, then they take a picture with it. Now, some of the websites say that then they go ahead and feed like multiple villages with this 12,000 pounds of elephant meat. Um, regardless, there's a lot of lion videos on YouTube, and um, he's describing the, his enemies in these terms. Lest they tear me like a lion, rending me in pieces, ripping him to, to shreds while there's none to deliver. It's a very vivid Image, very vivid metaphor. And for my sake, maybe your sake as well, but for my own weak stomach, I'm not going to describe in vivid detail some of these lions ripping apart people. But that's what he's talking about. He doesn't want that to happen to him. And if God doesn't come through, that's what he feels is going to happen to him. Now, it might be literally 
killing him. This guy, Cush, might be literally chasing him with a sword, trying to, to dismember him. That could be the case. Or it could be ripping apart his kingdom. Or it could be destroying his family, ripping that apart. There's a lot of different things that could be happening here. But regardless of what the details are, there are severe consequences if God doesn't come through for him. So this is a very intense situation. Perhaps you've been in such an intense situation. Being falsely accused. And if the truth doesn't win, you're going to have a felony on your record. And that's really serious. And that's going to rip your life apart. I hope that you never experienced that, but I'm, I know people who have experienced that, and there's probably people who either have or will experience that very thing. And in those times, you need God to actually rescue you from the situation. You need a not guilty verdict. Enemies, David's enemies are looking for him. They are searching for him. They are prowling around like a lion on the hunt. Some historical theologians, famous people, you would recognize their names, who lived and died many centuries ago, have seen this verse, verse 2, and they see that reference to the lion, and they see not just the concept of a lion or an enemy who's acting like a lion, but that greater lion, the devil himself, who is prowling around looking for an enemy to devour. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded and alert, because your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking those he may devour. That was true in David's time, it was true in Peter's time, and it's true in our time. Do not find it surprising when the devil continues to act in lion-like ways, using his choice servants to try to destroy believers. Lions are opportunists as well. Sure, they, they, you know, they might be feeling real brave and they go with their pride of lions and they just go and take down an elephant, but that's not what they usually do. That's kind of a big situation and that's kind of risky. They might get squashed or impaled. I told you, I've been watching a lot of YouTube videos lately about animals. They will watch for prey that gets separated from the herd. Maybe it's a... I was going to say deer, but I'm like, it's not deer. Let's use the proper word. We're talking about antelopes. We're talking about zebras. Maybe even a Cape buffalo, but those are, those are more intense. They don't usually go after hippos because those are real scary. But what they'll do is they'll look for one that's very old or very young, or one who's sick or slow. They'll hide in the bushes, they'll wait for the right moment when that one who's unsuspecting and a softer target comes strolling by. And that's when they strike. They don't usually do just a full-on attack the way, you know, like the, the Redcoats, the British in the Revolutionary War, they just line up and march across the field. They don't do that. They hide in the shadows. And they wait for unsuspecting prey to come strolling by, not paying attention, and then they pounce. Now, maybe you resonate with this description of they, they look for the ones that are very old or very young or very sick or very slow. Maybe you feel like that's you, and you feel like because of that, you're kind of uh, easy prey for the devil. That might be true. And if that's you, well, everyone, every believer needs to be a part of a local church. 
Every Christian needs to be committed to one particular body of believers. But if you are very old, very young, very sick, or very slow, then you especially need to be on the alert because you're a soft target. And I'm not necessarily talking about physical characteristics. Though certainly physical characteristics can can impact things. If you are ill, if you are sick, then that's a time of weakness where sometimes we do come under greater spiritual attack. But if you're a new Christian, if you're a new believer, that's a time where you're a real soft target. I think of of many uh, new believers who are being baptized in this church, and I've told them in the membership interviews as we're doing the baptism interview and talking about things, I say, just be alert that the night before your baptism, you might find yourself tempted towards relapsing in certain things that you have forsaken. You might find yourself tempted to, to despair You might find yourself in the throes of depression when you haven't had that depression in two months. You might find yourself doubting, is God even real? And all these voices in your head that aren't actually you are speaking to you and telling you things like, don't go through with it. Don't get baptized. Pastor Andy, he doesn't even care about you. He doesn't want to baptize you. He's just doing it because he's supposed to. There'll be all kinds of random thoughts that the enemy speaks into your ear because he sees you're a young, weak, vulnerable sheep. And so, a soft target. There's a lot more things that could be said on this. You make a whole sermon just out of this one point. But we have point one, David's opening cry and a statement of trust in God while Satan prowls around for him. Point number two, verses three through five. David contends that he is innocent using an if-then curse formula. I say it like that for the half of y'all are taking notes. David contends that he is innocent using an if-then curse formula. Maybe on days that my points are long, it's especially important to have them on the screen so it's it's easier to track. Verse 3 says, O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is iniquity in my hands, if I have repaid evil to him who was at peace with me, or have plundered my enemies without cause. What's the word there that's repeated three times? If. Verse 5 says, let the enemy pursue me and overtake me. I forgot to check other translations to see if other ones actually say the word then. But in the New King James, the word then is unstated, but it's very clearly there. If these things are the case, then let the enemy pursue me and overtake me. If these things are the case, yes, let him trample my life to the earth. And yes, lay my honor in the dust. If what they're saying about me is true, then yes, I deserve the following outcome. That's what he's describing. But he's not actually entertaining the possibility that these things are so. He's actually building his case that he is innocent by stating these things. It's sort of like when you were eight years old and you say, I swear on my mom's grave that the following thing is so. It's not because you actually want your mom to die. It's because you are that confident that what you're saying is true. And so this is actually a 
kind of a Hebrew literature thing, a concept of an if-then curse formula, where if this is the case, then I deserve to come under a particular curse. And so he is that emphatic that he is innocent of this accusation from Cush, the Benjaminite. So there's three ifs and one then. If I have done this, if there's iniquity in my hands, if I have repaid evil to him who was at peace with me. Remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about things being repeated in Hebrew poetry, and then if it's repeated three times, it means the most possible. You don't really find him repeating something four times. It's just three times equals to the max. But also what you observe is that in these three ifs, he's really saying the same thing three different ways. So his one singular point is, I've been accused of this particular thing. If I have repaid evil to him who was at peace with me. In other words, he was accused of betrayal. He's accused of stabbing somebody in the back. He says he didn't do it. He says he really didn't do it. He really didn't do it. But if I did that, if I plundered my enemy without cause, then let the enemy pursue me and overtake me. Yes, let him trample my life to the earth. Yes, lay lay my honor in the dust. If all that's true, then I deserve this judgment. But what he's saying is, I'm innocent. Now, the following section is going to be a longer section. But it's important to understand this. The doctrine of total depravity, which we affirm, we affirm what it actually means. We don't affirm what Arminians say it means. But we affirm that total depravity, which means that you are sinful in every aspect of your humanity. Everything about you is impacted or tainted by sin. But that does not mean you are as bad as you possibly could be. But further, total depravity does not mean that you're guilty of every possible sin. There are sins out there that you did not commit. Believe it or not, there are things that Alex Alberto has not done. He might be a bad guy, but he's not that bad. (laughs) Just kidding, he's a good guy. Um, So, just because someone was attacked with an axe yesterday... Last night at 9.15 p.m. here on the Upper East Side, there was some sort of a hammer attack, hatchet attack, or axe. Like somebody was attacking somebody in the 80s over on First Avenue. Just because that happened doesn't mean you're the one who did it. And further, it is false humility to claim guilt that doesn't belong to you. Oh, come on, just take the blame for it. We know somebody did it, so just... We know they're in the room. Somebody in this room did it. So we're not leaving until somebody admits they did it. And then finally, Trenton says, all right, fine, I did it. And he's like, but Luke and Colin can both verify he didn't do it. And he's like, I know I didn't do it, but I did it. Just, just blame me so we can get on with it. Well, that's not truth. That's a lie. It's false humility to claim guilt that doesn't belong to you. And because God is a God of truth, he hates lies. So please consider that when we're looking at David's defense of himself here in Psalm 7. Turn the other cheek does not mean take take responsibility for sins that do not belong to you. 
Now, we need to acknowledge that there are certainly some here who categorically do not admit that you've ever been wrong. Please ignore this point that I'm about to make. The type of person who just doesn't apologize ever. This next thing is not for you. But I'm saying what I'm saying because there is a gulf as far as the East is from the West between two personality types that some people in this room have. Number one, those who refuse to admit genuine wrongdoing even when confronted and presented with evidence. And then number two, those who continually take the blame for things they did not do and are overly apologetic. I once knew a girl who was so apologetic that if you ran into her, like you like bumped into her, she would immediately say, oh, I'm sorry. Even though she might be just standing there. And then you bumped into her. If you, you ran into her, she would say, I'm sorry. If you so much as frowned, she would make, uh, she would ask if, if she did something to make you upset and would seek to make it better. She genuinely believed that everything was always her fault. And even in that, she was so genuine with it, there wasn't a hint of ego. There wasn't a hint of blaming others. But in the process of that, she took enormous burdens upon herself that did not belong to her. It was something that her mother did to her, blaming her for stuff constantly. If she was mistreated, she, would, she was likely to respond something like this. Well, I probably deserved it. Because she actually thought that way. Now, there are people who view themselves as, quote, people pleasers who have never once taken the blame for something that they actually did, much less take the blame for things that had nothing to do with them. If the words, I'm sorry, come out of your mouth once a year or less, this does not apply to you. You're not a people pleaser, unless that people is yourself. You don't, you, you don't have false humility. You have genuine pride. False humility is this relentlessly, excessively apologizing for things that you didn't do. Or perhaps apologizing for things that weren't even bad. Or apologizing for things that nobody was bothered by. In order to make sure that you are seen as a very humble person. The point here is that David was genuinely innocent of whatever this accusation was. And my point for you, especially the newly reformed cage stage believers, cage stage believers in the doctrine of total depravity, is that you need to understand that you're not necessarily guilty of everything. Not every sin or crime that is done is your fault. There are wrongs that were not done by you. This concept of innocent until proven guilty is right and biblical. The presence of an accusation does not mean automatic guilt. An accusation must be examined. It is possible that people lie. Again, just because a crime was committed last night does not mean that you did it. And it is not godly to lie and to claim responsibility for something that you didn't do. We've seen this in our society over the last five years or so with the proliferation of white guilt middle to upper class white women feeling guilty for sins they never committed and repenting of their whiteness or supposed racism, though they may have never had a racist thought or action in their life. 
The idea that white supremacy is America's original sin and that all white people are guilty of racism and participation in slavery, you know, the 1619 Project, though America wasn't founded till 1776, 150 years later. That's relevant to all of this. Several years ago, a prominent pastor named Thabiti Anyabwile wrote on his blog on the Gospel Coalition's website, to white people, we await your repentance for killing MLK. He went on to say that your grandparents were guilty of killing MLK, even if they were Republicans. Even if they did not support the KKK. Thabiti said that MLK wasn't killed by a single gunman, but he was killed by the society. He was killed by the culture. And that since all of us who exist now have ancestors who were alive 40, 50, 60 years ago, we're all responsible for killing him because our ancestors were alive at that time. It is false humility to accept that nonsense. It is false humility to say, yeah, that's a valid argument. Because that's not a valid argument. Now, if your ancestors were part of the KKK and involved in lynching black people, then, okay, there might be some guilt there, possibly. But that's not everybody. So even those events of prior decades or even to current events or current accusations, maybe something happens at work, something happens in your home or in your family, it is appropriate to say, no, that, that didn't happen. I didn't do that. It's okay to say, search my heart, look at my actions, and you'll see I didn't do that. Look at the security camera. You'll see I wasn't there. God is not a postmodernist. He's not even an idealist. We're like, oh, because you think it is a certain way, therefore it is? No. Objectivism is, a much, is much more in line with the biblical worldview. Truth is not relative. Truth is that which pertains to reality. In other words, as a certain person said, the facts don't care about your feelings. You might feel like a certain thing happened, but if it didn't happen, it didn't happen regardless of how you feel. So you actually need to use the facts to change your feelings instead of letting your feelings control what you think. Many an innocent spouse has been accused of something that their spouse dreamed that they did. And they woke up and said, I had this dream, and in this dream, you did the following thing. And now they're mad at the other because in that dream, literally, they'll admit, this was a dream. I was asleep, and I had this dream that you did this. And then expect their spouse to apologize for it. If you're single, you probably can't relate to this. But if you're married, you probably can. If you're the dreamer of the dream, you need to not do that. You need to not accuse your spouse of doing the thing in your dream that you thought that they did and then demand that they apologize. <laughs> the idea that you felt a certain kind of way about something that didn't even happen, so now the world has to change to appease your emotions and try to make you happy, 
That's bad. The idea that your emotions must be affirmed even if they're based on a lie. All of that is the horrible fruit of the devil's lies that have overtaken our entire culture, including the worldview of many Christians. Sorry, countless Christians. That's in my notes. Not just Christians, Christian leaders, and certainly many, many Christian counselors. Well, you have to affirm the feelings. Well, what if the feelings are wrong? Well, feelings can never be wrong. They must be affirmed. Well, no, sometimes they're wrong. I will use another baby illustration. Sometimes my son feels like he's been abandoned, and he hasn't been abandoned. Not even close to being abandoned. His parent, just whether it's me or my wife, we just walked about five feet away from him. We'll be right back. We're still in eyesight. But he has this sudden fear that, oh no, you're leaving. Well, we're not leaving. Now, right now, he's not exactly of the frame of mind to be able to like, have a rational conversation about that sort of thing. But most of you are. Most of you are over one and a half years old. And so we can have those rational conversations about facts and truth and objective reality. And it's important to keep that in mind when your mind starts playing tricks on you. When you start thinking, well, this person, I, I, you know, I felt like they didn't whatever towards me. And it's like, but what is that based on? But what actually happened? Not what do you feel like happened, but like if there was a security camera in the corner watching the whole thing take place, what would the record show? God is a God of truth and he hates those who bear false witness against their neighbors. Bearing false witness involves lying about someone in terms of courts or accusations. So the summary of this matter is that it is possible to be innocent of an accusation and that there are times where it is appropriate to flatly deny any wrongdoing. You don't have to look for some middle ground, some partial truth. You know, I think of, I don't know if I should say or not because didn't check this before the sermon started, but there's someone who was falsely accused of committing a crime that they did not commit. How would it be if your lawyer's like, well, you know, you just, just plead guilty in order to get out of the, like, to get a lesser sentence. But you're like, no, I didn't do it. Find the security camera footage. I didn't do it. The truth is not some middle ground. It is appropriate at times, when that is the truth, it is appropriate to flatly deny any wrongdoing. And you don't have to find a search for some way in which you were at least partially responsible for things that you were not responsible for so that you can take some of the blame in order to appease your accuser. Sorry, appease your attacker. Because that's what it is. A false accusation is an attack. And biblical justice would require that that Outcome fall on the accuser, the liar. So we have now moving on to point three. Point three, the righteous anger of God at wickedness and injustice. I thought of just saying the righteous anger of God at injustice, but the word injustice means a lot of different things to a lot of different people in our culture today. And I, want to, I wanted to be clear that injustice is actually wickedness. And that wickedness is defined by God and his word. It's not just, again, whatever a person feels. 
is wicked or feels is unjust. You know, it's unjust that a certain person makes more money than me, or it's unjust that I have more possession that like, it's not just that we not all be equal. No, that's not, that's not biblical. That's not the same thing. That's not wickedness. It's not wickedness that a certain person has more than someone else. But there is righteous anger of God at true biblical wickedness. Biblically defined wickedness. Verse 6, arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up because of the rage of my enemies. So the enemies are attacking, and David is calling on God to actually rise up and actually meet that anger with greater judgment. Rise up for me to the judgment you have commanded. So the congregation of the people shall surround you. For their sakes, therefore, return on high. The Lord shall judge the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to my integrity within me. A lot of Christians have a lot of hurt in their hearts that they carry. Day after day, year after year. And so the cry of their heart is, how long, O Lord? How long are you going to prolong justice? How long is it going to be until you actually deal with the wicked? Now, perhaps you're thinking in terms of an end of the world type, type apocalypse. How long, O Lord, till you return? But I want to encourage you or to comfort you with this truth that God is judging the wicked and he is doing that on a daily basis even though you don't see fire raining down from heaven. Because what happens is when the wicked perish, they're judged and then they're cast into hell. And so God is judging the wicked and every single day a whole bunch of wicked people die. And are judged. Verse 9. Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end. That's what happens. That's, that's how that happens. The wickedness of the wicked comes to an end when they stand before God and they are condemned. The term here is this word imprecatory, an imprecatory prayer, a prayer that God would deal with the wicked. Let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. For the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. My defense is of God who saves the upright in heart. Again, it is possible to be innocent of a certain wrongdoing. Beyond that, though, it's actually possible to be counted just and righteous in the sight of God. Now, if you're new here, you might not know how that works. So I will tell you, the way that works, in order that God would look on you and say, not guilty, is by him sending his own son, Jesus, into the world to take the place of the guilty people, like you and like me. In fact, all of us are guilty. We're all sinners. We all deserve the just judgment of God. 
But a whole bunch of us have recognized that. We saw ourselves in our sinful condition and we said, oh no, this is bad. I don't want that judgment to fall on me. And oh, is there a way out? Oh, what is that way? Oh, it's Jesus taking my place. Well, by all means, please take my place. Yes, I'll take that payment. Jesus then pays your sin debt and he gives you his righteousness. And so you are forgiven. You're forgiven. You are counted righteous in Christ. Your record is wiped clean and actually placed onto your record is the infinite merit of Jesus Christ. And that's the way that a sinful person is reconciled to God. Because Jesus lived, died, and rose again for sinners. That's the message of the gospel. That's what a Christian believes. You might think of yourself as a Christian, but if you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. If you do believe that, you're a Christian. My defense is of God. Now, what happens is after you receive the defense that the Lord provides, then he actually begins to change you, to transform you, to grow you, to sanctify you, to take you from being who you were by birth and by choice, and to not just call you righteous in Christ, but to actually make you more and more and more like his son. And so that it is more and more possible for those security cameras to look at you and be like, nah, he didn't do that. He wasn't the one. He wasn't the axe murderer on the Upper East Side on Saturday night at 9.15 p.m. Maybe he was 30 years ago, but not anymore. He doesn't do that anymore. He's actually been saved and changed. And it's not prosperity theology to think that a person can actually grow in their sanctification. There's a movement known as Revoice, and Revoice is now accusing uh, Reformed Christians of believing in prosperity theology by implying or by stating that a person can actually put to death sinful desires. Instead, their movement is to rebrand those sinful desires as an inherent, intrinsic part of you that must be identified with. It's the gay Christian movement. What's that, what that does is that looks at a sinful person and says, you're never going to be rid of this. You're just going to have to embrace it, claim it as your own, as an intrinsic part of you. That's who you really are at your deepest level. That's not what God says of his people. He says, and such were some of you. And he lists homosexuality as one of those things. That people used to be, but now they've been washed, they've been sanctified, they've been transformed, they've been cleansed. So those sins I used to do, I don't do them anymore, and there actually is actual growth in the Christian life. And that's really helpful when it comes to false accusations. When you'd be like, look, I didn't do that. I wasn't even there. I was at home reading my Bible like a good boy. (laughs) Uh, Verse 9, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just for the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. My defense is of God who saves the upright in heart. Verse 11, God is a just judge and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he does not turn back, he will sharpen his sword. If the wicked doesn't turn back, then God will sharpen his sword. He, God, bends his bow and makes it ready. 
God also prepares for himself instruments of death. He makes his arrows into fiery shafts. If that strikes you as odd, or if that seems unloving or bad, then that should be an indicator, indication to you how far your worldview is from the Bible's worldview. The idea that oh, people don't deserve to go to hell, they don't deserve judgment, they actually, everyone, you know, all dogs go to heaven. We all deserve to go to heaven. We deserve to be happy and blessed for forever. Well, no, we don't. The mystery is not that some people go to heaven. The mystery is that anybody goes to heaven. Verse 14, behold, the wicked brings forth iniquity. Yes, he conceives trouble and brings forth falsehood. Our heart is an idol factory. Our mouth is a factory of lies. We just pump out sinful wickedness constantly until we encounter the living God and we are stopped in our tracks, sort of like Saul on the road to Damascus. He was going there to kill some Christians and the Lord stopped him. And you know what happened after that? He stopped killing Christians. He wasn't going to go throughout his life being, look, I'm just a Christian killing Christian. It's just what I do. It's who I really am and my innermost self. I'm a killer of Christians, so I need to keep killing Christians. Like, that's absurd. Uh, he conceives trouble, brings forth falsehood. He has made a pit and dug it out. He has fallen into the ditch which he has made. The ungodly, they're always creating these these evil plots, but those evil plots end up harming them in the end. They say, oh, it'll be fun. It'll be fun, they said. Well, then it turns out to not be fun 20 years later. And they have these regrets as they're laying in a hospital bed. His trouble shall return upon his own head. His violent dealing shall come down on his own crown. So the justice of God is risen up. It rises up as a defense against the unjust accusations against the righteous. Verse 8 is our example of that, um, that it is possible to not be guilty of a thing. Um, Verse 10, the one who through faith has been counted righteous need not fear. The one who by grace has been sanctified can rest securely in times of great distrust for he knows that God will deliver him. He can be confident that God is truly angry with the wicked. And while he was once among that number because Jesus was counted as the chief of all the wicked, as the wickedest man who ever lived in order to die for a vast multitude of sinners, he has now been counted righteous in Christ and is no longer among that assembly, but is in fact counted as one of his saints, one of the holy ones who are no longer objects of God's righteous wrath. Have you experienced that salvation? This is the ultimate deliverance that every person most greatly needs. You need to be saved. Now to receive this forgiveness, you must repent. That repentance is a changing of the mind. It's a changing of your mind from being set on sin and self to being now trusting in Christ. Trusting in Christ by faith. If you do not, if you will not, then verse 12 applies to you. If you do not turn back, the Lord sharpens his sword. The Lord bends his bow and makes it ready. 
He prepares instruments of death. He makes his arrows into fiery shafts. In other words, sinners are in the hands of an angry God. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, hear this as a warning. Not me being angry with you. I don't, I don't know most of you. I mean, I know half of you. But there's a bunch of visitors today. I have no idea what your story is. So I'm not saying any of this to be mean or unkind or, or make you sad. I'm saying this because I'm just trying to preach what the Bible says. And I want you to know that you can be saved by faith in Christ, the Savior of sinners, who saved a sinner like me. And he saved a whole bunch of the people sitting around you. So that's available. It's offered to you today. To get it, to receive it, all you have to do is receive it by faith. Trust in Jesus. Call upon the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. Now, our fourth and final point is a resolution of praise and trust. Verse 17. Resolution of praise and trust or trust hyphen confidence in God. Resolution of praise and trust slash confidence in God. Verse 17 says, I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness. And I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. I will sing praise to the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. The songs that we're going to sing in heaven are songs that revolve around this gospel message. The message of the righteousness of Christ, which brings about our salvation. And so we, the redeemed in heaven, will be singing this praise to God. Praise you for your righteousness, which you maintained while still forgiving us, the unrighteous people. And you did that by counting your son, your sinless, spotless son. You declared him guilty in my place. And that's how we all got forgiven. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. These are the, 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 that's the message of the songs of the redeemed. That we're going to sing forever and ever in heaven. Not just that. That's not even a song. It's just something I made up. But we're going to be singing Christian songs in heaven. And I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. When you have been wronged, when you have been falsely accused, it sure helps to remember ultimate justice. To remember the... The Lord is the ultimate judge, and he will judge the wicked, and he does judge the wicked. Every single day, he judges a whole bunch of them. And then someday, when you, saint, are in heaven, when you, Christian, are in heaven, you will sing praises to the righteousness of God. And that whole situation, that gives you much stability. It gives you much strength. It balances your boat that's kind of rocking back and forth in the midst of this trouble. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord God, we... Thank you for giving us this psalm, Psalm 7, that speaks to yet a new um, circumstance, a situation of life that has not yet been addressed in the first six psalms. It instructs us on responding to false accusations, responding to ungodly, devilish attacks from the lion who's prowling around looking for people, looking for saints to devour. 
I pray that it would serve as a, a ballast in the bottom of our boats to keep us from tipping over, from being so rocked by the winds and the waves. I pray for those who are going through situations right now that I'm not even aware of. I pray that you would help them. I pray for those who have hard hearts, who have been rightly and justly confronted, but due to their hardness of heart, refuse to acknowledge any possibility of wrongdoing, and might be tempted to misapply or mishear this message today and think that they could never possibly be wrong about anything. And so any accusation is definitely a false accusation. Lord, I pray for those people to be softened in their hearts. But I pray above that for the, the strengthening of those who are under fire, under wicked, ungodly, false accusations that actually take their source from the pit of hell. And I pray, lastly, for those who are not yet Christians, that they would take a moment to consider the eternal fate of their souls, to recognize that they need to get right with you. They need to be reconciled to God. They need their sins forgiven. And that they would receive the way that you have provided, Jesus, the Savior of sinners. Lord, I thank you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.